and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emma Knight. I'm Andrew Nichols. And today on the show, we have got a juicy case study for you. Now, every now and again, I like to scroll through the tenancy tribunal rulings to see all the naughty things that tenants and landlords have been up to so that we can bring them to you as a bit of a case study of what not to do. And the reason I like to do these is it because it just demonstrates so well the principles that we talk about on the show. And we've got a really, really juicy one a, for this you. This is a doozy one. It's, it's a doozy, all right. So I'll summarise it for you. Then we'll go through all of the details and analyse it a bit for you guys. So this tenancy only lasted 14 weeks and two days. So just a little over three months. And what had happened is... Nice guy moves in, tenant moves in onto the same property where the landlord is. So he's got a kind of sleep out in the back garden, a minor dwelling, which only has two rooms, a bathroom and the other area. So kind of a studio, lounge, come kitchen, come bedroom. And there was no written tenancy agreement in this case. And the tenant was paying about $350 a week for the sleep out. But, oh, here's your first wee doozy, the sleep out was not consented and had a real lack of facility. So the kitchen wasn't really a kitchen. It had a hot plate, but no stove, no oven, nothing nothing really good there. The power? Yeah, the power came through. Uh, through uh, the window? Those, through the window with one of those extension cords. Yeah, extension amazing. cord from the main house. on that hot plate as well. Apparently it was so poor that it could only just get to a simmer for a bowl of water. Yeah, so you're not cooking your poached eggs on no, there, are you? No. At least I mean, you? That would be fine in our kitchen, the amount we use it, but yeah. And there were just some real issues in terms of when he moved in, the tenant, it was dirty when he moved in, the carpet was literally rotting, Ugh. there was no council rubbish bin, so the landlord forbade the tenant from using the rubbish bin that he was using, because of course they were on the same place, no smoke alarms, the landlord very overbearing, so he would enter without permission, poked his nose literally in while the tenant was drying himself <laughs> off, having got out of the shower. It's like a laundry list of everything that went wrong. The landlord Probably would make- never laundry. No, he wouldn't have actually. <laughs> the, the landlord was, this is not something to laugh about, was making racist oh, remarks, bad really bad ones. I almost don't want to quote it on the podcast because no. it's no, quite we'll offensive. So not good. He forbade the tenant from bringing friends around. He could only have his son around. A really bad process. So the, the landlord did not launch the bond. He kicked the tenant out with only two weeks notice. And actually, this is the really, really sad part because the tenant was kicked out with only two weeks notice he had to live in his car for three weeks before moving in with family so you read this list of everything that went wrong and you probably think why did the tenant put up with this stuff and obviously he was in between a rock and a hard place because in the end he did have to be homeless for three weeks which is in his car. incredibly Terrible. sad you know especially if you've got your son you want to yep. have him around for whatever reason <laughs> Probably don't want to have him in your car. I mean, it's just really, really sad. So what we're going to do now is kind of analyse what happened with the tenancy tribunal. What are some of the really bad things that happened just so that you can hopefully avoid any mistakes? Now, I don't believe anybody listening to the show is, is going to make anywhere near this number of mistakes, but it's worthwhile just going through and thinking through it. So, Andrew, walk us through the financial outcome for the landlord here. So as we said before, the tenancy was about 14 weeks and the landlord collected in that time rent of about $5,000. Now there was also, if we're just going to look at the cash flow, there was also bond received of $700. So the total funds taken in by the landlord were $5,700. In terms of what he had to pay out, now now this isn't like a mortgage on the property or anything like that, what he had to pay out or was charged through the tenancy tribunal 
was almost $9,000. So $8,920.44. So he's negative just from that $3,220.44 plus any other expenses that he had. I presume the power was part of the, the rent, et cetera. Where did the fines come from? So firstly, the landlord didn't actually show up to the tenancy tribunal hearing and the adjudicator just proceeded regardless because they'd sent him a summons. The rental refunds was pretty much 50%. So $2,600 was awarded back to the tenant. And what was this for? That was for an unlawful dwelling and the tenant having to move out for a period of time while the carpet was being replaced. So there were a couple of days where the carpet was being replaced, so they did a rental refund, I think, of $100. That was for two days, I think it was. two days, and then the 2500 was 50% of the rent. So I guess they considered it that he still had a roof over his head, even though it was an unconsented one. So they adjusted the rent to not be a full refund, but to be half. And I suppose in that instance, the key thing here was it was because it was unconsented. That's why yes. 50% of it came back. Yes. And actually, that is an interesting learning because I remember we were talking about this. I think you'd said there were some students once in Dunedin. I'm remembering back about 400-odd episodes yeah. that were law students. They figured out that one part of the property was unconsented. And then at the end of the year when they moved out, they applied to the Tenancy Tribunal for a partial refund. Oh, I don't remember that, but that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds like something that Andrew Nichol would do. I think I do, do remember that. And I think we said don't rent out to law students. I do remember that. Jeez, that that was a long time ago. Yeah, 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 I actually listened to you, mate. I think that was one of the earliest ones we did. Now, they had exemplary damages from inadequate housing. So the fact that there was a rotting carpet and the uh, smoke alarms weren't working, etc. That was another $1,850. There was damages from the landlord not following the legal process, so the bond not being lodged, kicking the tenant out early. That was another $1,600. And damages from being overbearing, so overbearing, popping your head in all the time, basically to the extent where it was considered harassment, $2,150. So quite an even spread across all those different issues. And then there were others of $720.44, which was $700 for the bond refund and $20.44 for the application fee from memory. And so the reason it's evenly spread is this landlord basically did everything wrong. And I just want to be really clear, we're not suggesting that the landlord didn't deserve all of these fees because it's pretty clear if you were to read it through, the tenant had a really rough time. I actually think he probably should have got the whole rent refunded. Like it was so bad. Potentially. It'd be interesting to hear. It wasn't in the judgment that came out. They didn't explain why they'd chosen 50%, but that was the number that they'd use in this instance. But I think it's worthwhile pointing out that if you're not following process, if you're not doing things right, you know, this landlord actually had to pay almost an extra 60% or over 60% of the, the rent received, that was his loss yeah. in the end. So it was quite significant. Again, not saying he didn't deserve it because the, you know this guy just had such a rough time. But one question that I think is probably going through some people's heads listening to this is, we've often talked about cabins on this show. So you might get a sleep out, which is a single room without a bathroom, crane it over the top of the house, put it on the back section so that you are able to increase the rent and have an extra room on the property. And you might be thinking, well, Ed, those cabins are unconsented. So is that an illegal dwelling? Might I have to refund some of the rent if I then go rent that out? And the thing that's different here is that a cabin, first of all, is not rented out as a separate dwelling and it's not considered a separate dwelling. Why is that? It's because you don't have a kitchen in there, you don't have a bathroom in there. Now, if you tried to rent out that cabin 
as an entirely separate dwelling on an entirely separate tenancy agreement, then it wouldn't be considered a lawful dwelling. Why is that? Because there's no kitchen facilities, there's no bathroom facilities. So you couldn't do that. But if you're renting out a cabin as part of the whole property on a single tenancy agreement, then that's okay because you've still got the bathrooms, the cooking facilities, and there's access to the main house. Now, in this case, the bathroom needed consent if we're talking about this case that we're speaking about, the cooking facilities were inadequate and there wasn't any access to the and main actually, house. Actually, to be fair, if it had a kitchen in there, that would have required consent as well. You can have a cooktop without a consent. Absolutely. So the big issue was that it didn't have consent as well as a couple of other things. But it's quite interesting looking at these because the landlord did so many things would usually argue people should not to. Absolutely. In this case, they were so unprofessional because I think one of the big things is if you've got a cabin at the back of your house, you probably do treat it as if you're closer to your tenant than if you've got a property in a different city being managed by a professional. So I think it's a really good lesson that you do have to treat tenants with the right to privacy. You can't go poking your nose in at any time, particularly when they're getting out of the shower. That's not how you collect the rent. And um, you, you, you've got you've you to make sure you're not seen when you do that. <laughs> you've got to treat it as a business. And maybe this was probably actually better suited to a flatmate situation. And I actually was just thinking, I wonder whether or not, because there was no tenancy agreement, the default was that it was protected by the tenancy law. Whereas if he just had a flatmate agreement, probably none of this would have applied. I couldn't have had penalties. I have been thinking about that. But in that instance, he would have needed to have access to the main house because that's where the cooking facilities legally were. And that's where you'd have the legally consented bathroom. Right. So... I imagine in this instance, that's not what the landlord really no, wanted because no. they're so protective of their so own they're space. Somewhere between, they, they're trying to be a landlord but have a flatmate there. It's essentially, yeah. it, but it's not a good situation. Perhaps that's kind of how they were trying to treat it. I think this guy, the landlord in particular, was probably so emotionally invested. They thought, this is my house. Yes. This is, you know, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. I mean, not letting someone put their rubbish in the council bin is just ridiculous. Where are they supposed to put it? It is quite ridiculous. I mean, but the fee for that was only $100. It was quite low. But I mean, when you consider how much they had to pay all up. As we were reading the penalties, I was thinking for the amount of inconvenience, I'd be very unhappy with some of this money coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, just getting into that difference between the flatmate and the residential tenancy, because this is really interesting stuff. I remember back when I was about 18, I had a friend who went and, a very successful friend actually, owns a real estate company, went and worked for a very well-known real estate agent down in South Auckland. Don Ha was his name, who now owns Remax New Zealand. And the first task, it was was so fascinating actually that Don Ha got this guy to do, was move into, it was like an eight bedroom house or a 10 bedroom house that he owned, because if this guy was the head tenant, then everybody who came in was a flatmate. So as they brought people in almost room by room, these people were considered flatmates and didn't come under the Residential Tenancies Act. They came under a flatmate agreement. Now, what does that allow you to do? Well, it means you can bypass the tenancy tribunal, but it also means that if you need to get rid of somebody for anything, as long as it's covered within the flatmate agreement, you can get rid of them relatively quickly. Wow, so you just kick them out. So if you've got a larger house and you're renting out room by room, put your kid in it. Put someone in there for free and just have them as the property manager, essentially. Well, I'm not sure if I agree with putting someone in for free. (laughs) (laughs) But you could put in your son, your daughter, whatever it happens to be, because then you aren't governed by the same legislation. The other thing that would be interesting 
in this case that I've also been thinking about is if you did set it up as a separate tenancy agreement, so you covered under the RTA, I'd probably get a property manager anyway. Now, I know most people yeah. are going to say, Ed, that's very nice of you because Opus has got a, a property management <laughs> company, which is a very good one, by the way. Perhaps you should consider them. But, <laughs> but I think it's important because when it's so close, if something goes wrong, and let's be honest, nobody likes to have awkward conversations. It's always better to just have somebody else do it for you, somebody else do the inspections, because otherwise you are a bit too close, in my view. I actually had an investor who owned a property that they rented out the bottom half to, and they never told the tenants that they owned the top half, and they had a property manager. So they kept it completely secret that they own the property. Oh, that's probably quite good. Yeah. Because then they just think that, oh, it's some other nice tenants, yeah. so I'll leave them alone. That's right. Oh, that's very good. I yeah. like that idea. Yeah. Now, there's some sad things in here, Andrew. What are you, what are you thinking about that? Because oh, I imagine we both, we're looking at our papers, they've got tear stains on it. <laughs> that was actually me just dropping the water. Look, I think that the tenant has actually had a really rough time here. And like, as I say, even though it's quite extensive, almost $9,000 worth of fines, if I were treated like this, I would be asking for more than that. It's ridiculous. And, you know, they're living in these horrible circumstances where you've got, you know, rotting carpet and nothing works. And the landlord, these are the type of people that give property investors a bad name. These are the stories that end up in the paper and everyone thinks these slum lords. And I've sold Wilson's Road now, so I'm not a slum lord. So I think it's really important that landlords take away from this that you need to educate yourself on the basics. You need to have a property manager. You need to actually be treating your tenants with respect and giving them a nice place to live in. And maybe a flatmate agreement is more appropriate when you're, you've got a situation where you're renting out another part of your house or, or another part of your site or something like that. I think the other thing that's really sad, and we haven't seen this yet, but we've often talked about that if you take your tenants to the tribunal and you win and say they owe you $3,000, that that money might drip out because they might not have the cash there straight away, so they might apply for that to be paid over time. Yes. Essentially, they'll pay you back. I don't know how well this guy manages his money in terms of the landlord in this situation, but the tenant may not get nine grand hitting his bank account no, like that. Normally they have what's called a means test. So you'll actually put in your assets, liabilities, income and expenses, and they'll work out $50 a week is what you can pay it over. And normally things get drip fed over a number of times until they stop and then you can't enforce them very well. But landlords are a little bit easier to get the money out of because there's a house that you can put a hock onto. Just one other thing that was quite interesting about this. So they due Educator suppressed both parties' names. So in the instance for the tenant, they actually thought that it would be unfair to publish the tenant's name because that might hinder him at actually getting another property in the future and also his son. And because they'd suppressed his name, they suppressed the landlords for consistency as well. I actually thought that all names were suppressed nowadays. Is that not No, the no, 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 no. No, it's ruthless. You can see whoever it is. That's what it should be, in my opinion. And actually, the landlord did say something about here about open justice is what they use, which basically means that everyone's names can be out there and then me as a landlord can go, I'm not taking Tim Jennings on as a tenant because he won $9,000 off his last landlord. <laughs> now, hey look, we're going to wrap it up there, but you need to tune in for tomorrow's episode because we're going to be talking about adding a minor dwelling onto the back of your property and renting it out. It's got to be a really interesting episode and we're going to jump into some town planning rules, which we haven't actually dived into much on this podcast, so it's going to be good. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. And Actually, I've just got to say a bit of a uh, public gripe <laughs> about some of these texts I get in from some of you all. Some of you think that you're, you're, you're funnier than me, which I've is probably enjoyed, true. 
true. enjoyed uh, Ed sending his text over the weekend showing me what the people think of his jokes. Well, actually, this one, this one made me laugh out loud. Somebody texted it and said, I'd like to hear more of Ed describing flashings. <laughs> so it might not be building flashings. It might be the ones from the park next time. But, um, <laughs> but please do keep those texts coming in because it's great to be talking to you. If you want to send us a message, our number is 5522. Whip out your phone, send us a text. And hey, make sure Tuesday, 7pm, we've got our webinar. We're going to be talking about how to get more money out of the bank. How do you sign up for that? Tap or swipe over the cover up. There's going to be a link in there. Or just go to our website, opuspartners.co.nz. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emma Knight. I'm Andrew Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most. Until next time.